Welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, personal finance, investing, entrepreneurship, and the many ways to achieve financial independence. We interview accomplished investors and entrepreneurs with the goal that their stories inspire you to take control of your financial future. Here to get your creative juices flowing while also documenting their own personal investing journeys are your hosts, Corey Jacobson and Ryan Bevilacqua. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, it's your boys here with another episode for you. Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Cody Davis. He is a real estate agent and investor that has built a portfolio of 105 units in just three years time using no bank loans. Absolutely insane story. I can't believe he's done this at such a young age. Um, oh, I don't think I mentioned that. He's only 22 years oh, old. 22. Yeah. Huh. He partners on all his deals using creative financing and relationship marketing to his advantage. When you listen to Cody talk, it's like he has a computer in his brain. So just bear with the how analytical he is. And I think what you can do is you can take from this episode, like somebody who's 22 years old, been doing this for three years, and he's never used any of his own money. In fact, he doesn't even really care about his own money. He just wants to build this portfolio. He talked about a goal of having 10 billion, that's billion with a B, $10 billion in equity in his properties prior to him being 40 years old. And he's 22. So he said he has 17 and a half years to do it. And just listening to him, I'm like, this guy's going to do it. Like yeah. him and him and his partner, who we interviewed actually Christian Osgood on episode 115, which was, I guess, almost two months ago at this point. So Cody is incredible, man. I, I don't know if you have more to add here. He yeah, is like... So I think it was super admirable. Towards the end of the episode, he mentioned how just how difficult it was for him to put himself out there and start to start building relationships. He's an introvert to a T. And he said like he had to go invite people to get coffee at Starbucks just to train himself on how to talk to them and like overcome that. I wouldn't call it a fear, but just like kind of like speed bumps for him. It's it didn't come easy. Um, and I think for those a lot of people don't know what people are going on have going on behind closed doors or what yeah. internal struggles they go with. And like for him to be able to use relationship marketing and like his relationships to scale the portfolio to 105 units, but not comfortable initially having conversations with people. I think about you and I, and we're just, it's free flowing. We don't even think about it. It's just so natural for us. And that to me was very admirable for him to even mention it out loud, but talk us through the struggle a bit because it's for us, that's a tool in our arsenal that we didn't even probably realize was so useful. Yeah, we we have that kind of as like a more natural gift. But then there are other things that you and I lack that he is like, dude, he's like a bull in a china shop with the, like just not taking no for an answer, just get it, getting after it. And he's so far ahead of where we are. It's a humbling thing to see that somebody has like, we think the relationships are what helps you scale, scale the portfolio. And it does, but we're way behind, behind in air quotes where he is. And he just learned how to talk to people. So I think it's a really cool mix of what he's really good at using that to his advantage and then building up the skill sets that he was weaker in to help complement what he's already good at. And it's interesting. One last point I want to bring up is like, it's interesting what the universe will give you when you're, when you want to do good for others. We talked about all this cash. He's, he has 105 units that brings in about $25,000 a month. And we're like, so in cash so flow, in not cash, yeah. sorry, in cash flow. Yeah. This is net after. And, yeah. and he's, we're like, wow, you're like, would you buy a car? What do you like? What are you going to do for yourself? He's like, no, actually, I'm just trying to build up the community around me and provide for others that have come from split income homes or, or have had trouble with their upbringing. And just, I want to provide that support to people that don't have it. And there's just no question in my mind that there's some something else helping this man out upstairs. And it's just like, he's doing good for other people. And it, it, you know, he's obviously that story is, is kind of transferable and everybody hears it and, it and who doesn't want to invest with someone like that, but also he knows his stuff and super analytical as Corey mentioned, but I think that's probably enough of giving his story. Let yeah. him tell it himself. Let's let him do it. Uh, let's bring in Cody. As you know, we talk a lot about financial independence, building revenue streams, and buying yourself more income. Wanted to give our listeners a special opportunity to potentially add a different revenue stream for themselves and into their portfolio. Tune into episode 110 to hear Corey and I peel back a couple layers on something that we're investing in currently at the moment. Just gives you a snapshot of where we are in our journey and gives you the opportunity to invest as well. This specific opportunity is to invest in a YouTube content monetization channel. And we go through every single step of the way, how we got involved and all the ins and outs of it. And if you're interested, after listening to the episode, feel free to drop us a DM. We're happy to answer any questions that you have and we'll point you in the right direction. Cody, officially welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast. Corey and I are so excited to have you on the show today. So thank you very much for joining us. Ready to rock and roll. Appreciate you guys having me. 
Absolutely, man. So if you could give us a little uh, background on you, how you got into real estate investing and why this is your, uh, I guess, investment vehicle of choice. Yeah, I've been investing for about three years, coming on three years in October, got licensed as a real estate agent. That was my entry into the space in January 2019. And uh, I was the first person in my family or friend group to get into the space at all. The most my family's been in real estate is owning a house. And so it was completely new territory. I'd grown up in a split household since I was about eight and gone through school as an introvert. Didn't have a lot of friends, but played on some sports teams. And at uh, 18, I was getting a little bit interested and I, I saw someone that was flipping a house and they were actually a, a contractor and they referred me to a, a Facebook group. And so I joined that group and that eventually led me to get my real estate license. That was my start. Excellent. So did you make the pivot to college or did you go right agent right out of high school? I was uh, actually waited a year. And so I graduated high school 2018. I went to college for two quarters and then ended up dropping that, decided to leave, got my real estate license with no experience and just jumped into it. Great. So what did you do for a job before real estate and becoming an agent? Yeah. So I was a gymnastics coach for four years from, well, at that time it had been 16 to, to 19 when I got licensed. I did it for one more year. So 16 to 20 and that was it. Very cool. cool. So what was your transition period between when like getting your license and then actually becoming on the, like on the investing side of the real estate business? Did you start to sell a bunch of homes first? Was it doing it simultaneously? Uh, what was your success like as, as an agent, I guess, starting out too? Well, there wasn't any success as an agent. Six months in, hadn't sold anything. And shortly thereafter, ended up selling a duplex. Someone called me up late at night and asked if I could help them buy a house. And I said, yeah, but you should buy a duplex instead because they were the same price where they were looking to buy. And so I helped them buy a duplex and that kicked it off. And then I sold a mobile home and then I listed a house and then I bought a 12plex. And so I didn't actually make much to any money. I was on a 50-50 split with the brokerage I was at. Didn't save anything. So by the time I bought my 12plex, I had just about $3,000 to my name. So you had 3,000 bucks. And then let's give people a little preview. We'll talk about kind of ex like where your portfolio is at today and where you're at. And then we'll walk people backwards and how you got there. So how many, what's your unit count right now? And what's the cash flow that you're bringing in? Yeah. So I'm at a, uh, about a, well, not about, I'm at 105 rental units today and working on closing out a few more in real time. But uh, as far as cash flow from the portfolio, my net's about 25 amongst everything that I've built today, thousand. Amazing, dude. Uh, and just to put into perspective, people, he's 22 years old. So uh, young cat making a lot of dough and, and scaling fast. So what I want to do is kind of like go back in time, right? Take us through your first deal. How'd you find it? What'd you buy it for? What type of deal it was? Like the whole picture so that people can get into it. I know it's kind of a, a funny story of on the agent side, right? To get into that 12 bucks. Yeah. So it was listed on the market 551 days. And uh, I always thought it was 561, but I look back, it was 551. And so I, I saw that on the market and it was listed with seller financing. And I, I didn't know anything about seller financing when I was getting started as an agent. I didn't know what it was, but there was another broker in the office who had 22 units. It was a fourplex, a sixplex and a 12plex that was written up with seller financing. And that ended up falling apart for the buyer. My mentor at the time said I should buy it. It was 300 grand down. I didn't have 300 grand. So he's like, well, you could borrow the down payment. And that's what sparked my interest. I was like, oh, I don't need to qualify with a bank. Now I, did, I needed a one week extension to get the 22. I didn't get it. And that's what led me to start just looking on the MLS. I put in seller financing as a search term, found a deal that was on the market forever. And I wrote an offer. And that's, that's was my start. So what was the, uh, what was it about this property that had somebody keep it on the market for that long? Was it on and off like 551 days? You figure like after, you know, after 200 days, like that thing's not getting sold. Like did this person just keep it with an agent and just keep it on the market? Like how did this even come to be on that long? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of properties that just sit on the market for years. The biggest property I ever bought to this day, I'm about to dwarf that with the one I'm working on right now with my buddy Christian, but, uh, 
the biggest property I ever bought was on the market for 13 years. Interesting. So <clears throat> what I find really cool about this is that everyone always says, if you listen to like big uh, real estate investors are like, you know, you can't get any, get um, a real estate deal without making offers. And like, that sounds so elementary, like, yeah, okay. Like, duh. Right. But like somebody like you has no experience, had no experience at the time. You just made an offer where a lot of other people were probably just bypassing this deal and like not looking at it, not looking at it the way that you were. So that really rings true. Like you can't get deals unless you make offers. And it doesn't matter if you're 56 and have 300 units or if you're 18 and don't have any, right? So I think that that's important as long as you understand how to run the numbers. And that's my next question like that I'm curious about. Like, can you talk about the numbers on this deal and how you learned how to figure out the numbers being at that young age? Yeah, well, it's simple algebra. There's a lot of uh, extra letters people throw into the analysis space of IRR, COCROI. Like, it just doesn't matter. When I'm looking at stuff, how do I buy it? How do I never lose it? It's all that matters. And long-term debt and positive cash flow. And so I just wrote out the incomes and then subtracted out the expenses. And it was positive. And originally, I thought it was going to be over a thousand bucks a month. I bought it. It was closer to 800. And today that deal is closer to 3000. So I just bought it day one. I was like, okay, it makes money. And if it makes money, my odds of losing it are less than if it doesn't make money. And that's how I bought it. I think that's one thing that people need to realize when they're going out and they're purchasing property. And if your intention is to hold for the long term, which in our position, it should be. Doesn't mean that you can't buy a deal, flip it in three, you know, rent it out and flip it in three or four years. Cause you certainly can, but then you'd get into market dependencies and that's harder to, to understand. Right. So if your goal is to hold the properties that Ryan and I have bought over the past couple of years, they're cash flowing great from day one, we handed over to a property manager and we're realizing that they're cash flowing a lot less than we originally thought. But the whole point behind that is we've owned them for like a year and a half, like a year, some of them. So it's like if, when these things are churning in three, four, five, six, seven years, rents go up, you know, expenses stay relatively the same, then you really start to see the benefit. And that's what you said. That property that you bought not that long ago, $800 a month in cash flow is now cash flowing $3,000 a month. And I imagine that's because you're able to raise the rents and do some renovations. Yeah, that it was a culmination of raising rents a little bit. I didn't do that for the first two years at all. And uh, I didn't want to lose tenants, but I had to borrow. So the down payment was 12% interest, hard money in second lien position on that asset. And the reason I was able to get that was um, I negotiated a 30 year fully amortized note. You think about loan to own, right? If, if they have to foreclose, I mean, they get a note they can't get anywhere else on a 12 plex. You just can't get that with conventional financing, no balloon, fixed rates, like a house. So I've paid that off, but that payment on the hard money was twelve fifty a month. So that instantly brought it up quite a bit, more than doubled. And I've gotten the rents up a little bit, and there's more rent bumps coming into play next month, which will bring the cash flow closer to four thousand dollars. But it it definitely takes time. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are probably wondering, a what was the purchase price upfront, and then how did you source the funds? to buy this unless you had it yourself, but I think you're at 19. So I'm, I'm curious how you had dealt with you did. Yeah. So I had three grand. So it definitely wasn't my money, but I uh, bought the deal for a million one twenty five. bought it for list price. I didn't beat them up on price and it was 10% down. So it was $112,500 down. I mentioned my payment was 12% interest. It was 12 50 months. So I actually borrowed $125,000 for the down reason being I had no reserves. And uh, I had to cover closing costs. So I borrowed a little bit more than the down payment, had a little bit of money in the bank. When I closed, I actually got a, a 2% commission back. So I got a little bit more money and got paid to buy it. And the money came just from an individual. It was from someone, uh, one of the investors from another broker in the office. And I just had to go around and ask everybody for help because I didn't know how to pitch. I was super introverted, didn't know how to talk to people never been in the money space or the real estate space. And so I pitched a bunch of people and botched those meetings, but uh, eventually got in front of the right investor. And I got props from one of the brokers who were like, this guy could do it. You need help. I don't recommend people try and do it in the beginning by themselves. And uh, he put me in front of the investor, made the pitch and got the money. 
So Cody, I'm really curious about maybe a more, um, the mentality side of this, because when you talk to a number of people who are, let's just say maybe they're more set in their ways, they're in their thirties or forties to learn this lack of fear for, I guess, lack of better word to go into this, even for them, it's really hard, but you had no experience. You didn't go to college. You, you had essentially the real estate license and $3,000, like you said, what, what allowed you to get yourself in the frame of mind that you could actually do this? So I think that's the, the biggest part for people that haven't done something like this, this before. It's like the belief comes first, right? Did, were you just like kind of blind faith? What was it about your attitude that allowed the, you to succeed? I didn't, I mean, it's not in that. A lot of people say you got to think it to make it happen. And that's not true. It was three months after I bought my property. I didn't have any money for lawn care. I didn't have a landscaping budget and I was mowing the lawn and I looked over and I was like, those are my bricks. It was three months after I bought the property that I realized I actually owned it. They just didn't click. And so I didn't think it was possible. Uh, I didn't know because I hadn't seen anybody else do this the way I was doing it before, but I, I, I didn't have the confidence at all. And I didn't believe it was going to work. I got in front of an investor it was one of my old mentors investors and I botched that meeting. And I actually haven't seen them since, but I forgot what I was asking for, how much money I needed, what the terms were, what the cash flow was, how much I needed to raise. I didn't know any of it. I just forgot all the numbers. And my mentor at the time, he said, oh, okay, how much, because he was in the room with the investor and me. And he's like, okay, how much money do you need? We had to walk through that. It was that bad. And a lot of people are not willing to go through that or even ask. Um, I, think, I think it's a pride thing for a lot of people too, right? There's, there's just this fear of failure and of the fear of looking bad, right? And so, so much so that it prevents people from ever taking action or doing anything. So his naiveness actually helped him in that scenario because he was like, didn't know what he didn't know. And it wasn't like this whole pride back thing where you have all this fear. Yeah, like you're just like, all right, I'll just figure this out as you go and hope and your mentor helped you out. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's almost like a classroom setting. It seemed like, not that that's the way you're, you're the way I'm envisioning this as a fly on the wall here is just like watching you in there and your, your mentor guiding you through this with an investor that, you know, obviously wasn't too cruel or it wasn't gunning you down for this. He, you know, he clearly liked the deal, but um, you went through it, you had training wheels on it, right. And then you got it done and then look at your portfolio today, two, two and a half years later, you're at 105 units. Clearly you're doing something right. And you're following you're using your failures as stepping stones. And I think we mentioned that in a couple other episodes, but I think it's really admirable and cool. And it's amazing to see what you can do in a short amount of period of time. Yeah. And I guess the next thing I want to go into is your regional market and like where you invest. And just to give people an idea of maybe where the 12 flex was, but not only that, like, did you shift to a different market? Have you always been investing in your backyard in the same market? Just give us a little background on that. Yeah. So the majority of my stuff is about three hours away from where I grew up and two and a half hours from where I live today. I grew up in a place called Tacoma. It's just south of Seattle. And today I live in Renton, which is a little bit north of Tacoma, but I invest over in Grant County, central Washington. Primarily, I do have a sevenplex in Tequila and a partner on with Christian. We like to partner on stuff. It's fun to grow together opposed to doing it on your own um, because that was hard enough doing it on my, my own in the beginning. But we have that. We're looking at buying something in Mason County, which is closer to Gig Harbor area. And we're a little bit sporadic, but for the most part, just an owner in Grant County. And we actually just became the single largest property owner by building count as far as multifamily goes in the whole county. And uh, all, I'm not familiar with the area. So these are all in Washington state, correct? Yeah, it's all okay. in state. And do you think you did that based on just proximity of where you were? Like, do you love this market or was it like, I just have the knowledge of where I am to beat out other people that maybe come into this area. I mean, the only reason I ask is because, um, you know, it's not like Austin or Atlanta or all these like emerging markets that everyone's like, you're getting money from different areas of the United States to come into. It sounds like you just knew your market where you lived and then executed based on um, that and the proximity to it. Is that correct? Uh, it, it actually wasn't about market knowledge. I, I just found an opportunity that I could buy. In the beginning, everybody likes to focus on, oh, it's, you know, it's got to be perfect. It's like, no, I just got to figure out how to buy it. That's it. And now that I started buying over there, about a 12 plaque, shortly thereafter, bought another 12, then a six, and then a 38. And as I started building up market dominance over in Grant County, I you was know, scaling up. 
uh, working on buying more there right now. You know, eventually I've become a significant player over there to where I've got more multifamily than all the smaller fish in that market. And I'm starting to become a mid-sized player where I compete with, you know, the, the syndicators. There's a couple over there and we're going to go take them down. And then you got the billionaires who are invested over there. But uh, as I start to grow now, it's like, okay, well now I have market knowledge. Now I have market influence and I have control because I have enough stuff there. But in the beginning, it's not about that. It's how do I get into real estate that pays me every month and forget everything else? Cause until I have a, a real estate problem, I just have a problem. I don't own any real estate. So that brings me to a question is like, then what do you recommend for aspiring investors or investors that already have a portfolio? Maybe it's very small and they're looking to scale up. Like what should they be doing to scale? I know you got you and Christian kind of a, a way you go about things by building relationships with people um, yeah. in a super healthy way. Right. Where it's just like, gaining more, you're building trust and they, they like you and you're getting your face out there. So can you walk us through that process of like how you guys go out and like plan your attack? Yeah. So, I mean, this is back to your first question, aspiring investor, let's say you've got, you know, maybe zero to 20 units and you want to scale. I would just identify what you want to go achieve. So if you want to get to 20 grand a month, you don't have to go buy a 200 unit complex, 20 grand a month, quarter million dollars a year. It's $4 million paying you 6%. And the quickest way to make $4 million is to borrow it and let tenants pay it off. So build the portfolio that maths out to what you want and then get in a position where you can write a check for it. And you just got to figure out how do you buy it? You got to find the debt after you find the deal. And if you need equity, cause you can't hundred percent leverage it, then you got to find that. So is there a criteria, Cody, in terms of cash flow per door? Or I know you just mentioned you're not into all of these acronyms that are thrown that are thrown around in real estate, but like how do you qualify a deal for one that you want to buy? And the reason why I ask this is because I'm thinking of 105 units paying you twenty five thousand dollars a month. Like, I don't how much how how much more do you even need to go? Like where what we'll get to your future goals with it too. But like, what's your criteria? What's, what would you tell somebody that's like, okay, I want to do this, but like, I don't know what a good deal is. Maybe you can use an example in your own market. Yeah. So I believe that the story is worth more than the real estate. And so you talk about, okay, what's, what's enough. I don't pay myself anything out of the real estate at all. I just, the other day I went down to $3 and 78 cents in my personal bank account. I don't care. I mean, I'm, what are my expenses, right? It's like low. I've got rent. Well, rent's too high, but I don't pay myself anything. <laughs> you know, I don't pay myself anything out of the real estate. It's all being reinvested into that market because there's a lot of properties out there that people will just milk and they'll never fix up. And so I'll go in and do the expensive renovations where we're spending $90 to $100 a square foot. It's a lot for rental, but no one else is going to do it. And the story behind that's powerful. And so I'm just reinvesting everything so that there's a better future for that market because no one else is doing it. I'll call a shot for something we're building to, but I'm going to put a top golf. And Christian and I are going to get to the point where we can put a top golf in Grant County. We're going to put it in Moses Lake. We're working on locking down the land. We have one more requirement we have to hit to franchise it. Uh, we got to be in hospitality for three years and, working on seller financing a resort right now. So three, four years down the road, we can start looking at that, but that'll be a huge draw for the area. And that's where this goes. We can build a future when no one else will, because there's no one else in that market that has all the right criteria to do that at this point in time. Great. So back to my original question then in terms of the qual the qualification for a deal. Yeah. Um, I had another one and I'll think of it, but I just add off the top of your head, like what are you looking for to qualify that 12 or that 38 or that 25 unit complex? Two yeah. Two questions only. How do I buy it? How do I never lose it? If I can answer those two questions, I'm good. So you're saying that if they, if it comes in at break even for now, you'd be okay buying it. Just based on the fact that you think rents are going to continue to go up and you won't have to lose it. Is that, would that be a good deal for you? Just curious. So I, I just make sure that I've got enough margin. So break even, I mean, day one, I could do that. The 38 unit negative cash flow at 15 grand a month when we bought it. Her, today, it's her best cash flowing deal. And mm -hmm. Chris and I just 50-50 on it. So 
uh, my main thing is I want to figure out, okay, can I buy it? If so, how do I structure the debt? Because I never keep equity because I don't pay myself anything. We work really hard not to pay ourselves. And then um, as far as the, how do I never lose it? It comes down to long-term uh, fixed rate debt with a significant DSCR. And if I can pay it off before the notes do, like if I have a five-year balloon, like on the 38 unit, we owe a million six seventy and change. We could pay that off in the next four years before it's due if we had to. Like if we just took all of our money and hammered the mortgage, we could pay it off. We wouldn't have to refinance. And that's what I mean when I say, how do we buy it? How do we never lose it? And that requires us to keep scaling because if you're just looking to buy a duplex, it's very hard to use all the income from a duplex and pay it off before the notes typically do. Very cool. I have a, a quick one for you. And it's interesting. I know you are an agent, so you might feel one way or another, but do you believe that it's a it's a huge benefit for someone that wants to get into real estate investing or maybe as a small time real estate investor, they want to scale up large to become an agent, to get more resources, to learn, I guess, get more educated on the topic, be surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. What are your thoughts there? No, I don't think it is. If you want to be an agent, go be an agent. But that should be your qualifying criteria right there. And I would keep it that simple. If, if you don't want to be an agent, then don't. And if you do, do. But it it's not what's going to put you ahead of everybody else. Cool. So I don't know if you answered this question, Cody, but you just said you don't pay yourself anything. And $25,000 a month in cash flow is a lot to not pay. Like you have a lot of options there. You're growing your net worth. You're, 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 you know, you have significant money coming in. Did you? How do you pay? How do you make money right now? Is it through the? Is it through being an agent? Is that what you're doing to to, to make active income, or is it something else? So what Christian and I did for the meanwhile, because he he doesn't have a real job anymore, and his he just retired his wife, which was his goal. We're partnering everything today. Uh, we whenever we ran out of money, we just go broker something. How that wow. said, we're hanging up our broker's license actively. So we're just going to let it expire and that's going to shift. And so what will likely come out of that is we'll have to pay ourselves out of the real estate. But we haven't done that much to this day because as soon as we need money, we just broker something. It's, it's super interesting. It seems like you're trying to build a, a lot of people are trying to build like a life for themselves and generational wealth for their families. That's right here. But it seems like you guys are trying to better the surroundings and the environment of the people in your community. Is that the main goal here? Um, like to build it up and create like a sustainable place for everyone to live and thrive. I know you mentioned the top golf, you guys became, I think in old County, the biggest highest in unit count you want the power, right? The control. So is, can you elaborate on that? Am I off? You're not off what we found. And I've been doing this just a little longer than Christian, but we're only in this a few years. Sure. Um, I learned that the the quickest way to scale is to learn from other people's stories and give them an opportunity to share it. And that was one of the most impactful things that I ever learned is if you give someone an opportunity to share their story, they'll give you things that they won't give anybody else. And to truly understand where they're coming from. And so the thought behind just growing to grow and improving that community is it gives people an outlet that didn't have it before. Now, it may not just be with sharing their story because you know, building a top golf isn't going to do that, but it's going to give them an outlet for some of the people that have just been living in a specific area that don't have access to those things. The grandkids come, but you know, there's not as much to do. It's like, well, now they get to go build their own story and we can be an outlet to enable that. And one of the key things that I heard that was instrumental to me really wanting to scale and eventually partnering with Christian two years into my career was that somebody's going to get to 50 million, 500 million, a billion dollars. The difference is if you do it, you can manage it better than others. That was important for me and that hit home. And so do I need to do anything else? Probably not. Just Christian. No. If we just sold a couple of our places, paid off the rest, we'd be done. We'd have no debt. We could Dave Ramsey it forever. But that wouldn't really hit that last point. Right. Totally. So real quick. So yeah. you mentioned Christian a lot throughout the episode. We actually had him back a few, maybe a month or two ago. So um, we'll, we'll find the episode number for him. But I want to talk about you guys becoming partners. So you briefly touched on it. Can you talk about why you decided to jump in with a partner and not tackle this thing alone? And that what, like, 
also talk about some cons. I know you're not going to talk bad about Christian, but like, what are some like hiccups you guys learned along the way? And then why do you also feel that having a partnership or having a partner helps scale faster and is more fun, exciting? Like, it's just interesting. We have a lot of people that reach out and they ask, they, they weigh this, the scale, right? They're like, Hey, should I just rip this thing alone? And I'll, I'll take all the profits myself. Or should I go in with a partner? Just let me know your thoughts through experience. The quickest way to scale that I've found is with a partner. And the reason that I don't drop names for my original mentor, we actually partnered on a venture and it ended up costing me about half a million dollars. And I had to sell out a ton of real estate. I sold out a multi seven figure position in my real estate portfolio from January of this year to June to pay off his obligations. And so partnerships aren't always great. Christian and I partnered a year ago from this month. We actually just celebrated in Lake Chelan one year of business together. If you partner with the wrong person and we have a rule, you can't do a good deal with a bad partner, you'll know pretty quick. It doesn't seem to drag on super long before you realize it's not good. And that can cost you a lot of money, a lot of time, stress, and it can burn relationships. But with the right person, one plus one equals three, and you can scale faster than you could on your own. And that's how it happened with Christian. I had been burned by um, this guy who was a mentor. And I couldn't be here today without him because he helped me make those pitches with the initial investors. However, uh, got you get burned too many times. It's like, well, that's not good. And then Christian got burned by him as well uh, a little bit last year. And we bonded out of that. And so we partnered and I met with Christian's wife. We started working together and started becoming friends more so than just business partners. And everything just worked. Everything we did, every deal we bought worked. Every time we needed something to happen, it just happened. And we're, we both truly believe that that is a possibility. You can have all ups. Now, granted, I had a lot of downs with the other person. And as a Christian, and Christians had terrible business ventures in the past with uh, you know, partnerships. But everything that we do is just working. And we've made mistakes. But we progress out of it. And when other people are running away, we're taking the field and really trying to make this thing happen. Very cool. Seems like you guys have your best interest in mind, right? You bonded over the, I don't know how you really want to call it, but like the mishaps of, of the other guy, I'll, I'll be, will be nice. But, yeah. um, so for us, I think we have, it's not only like assigning roles and, and we each kind of go in our own lane and like helping scale fast, but it's, there's also an element of you ever have something or you go on a trip where you just have a lot, like an abundance of something and you feel not fulfilled and kind of want to share it with someone. For me, that's that's kind of how I feel with the partnership. Like this would be cool and fun for me, but I'd almost feel selfish in a way. Like it's like I kind of like going through the ups and downs. Um, because then you and then you you tackle it with someone else. A it makes it a little bit easier, but you can laugh through the pain a little bit and you're like, all right, we're yeah. gonna get through this, man. It's like a sounding board. So it's hard for me to really articulate it into words, but I I just truly love having a partner. I don't personally I'm not the guy that would go at it alone. I, I could, like I'm confident in myself. You have, to, you have to learn a lot more and you have to be proficient in everything continually. And it's, it's, it's a heavier weight. You got a lot more profit, but I would, me 10 times out of 10, forget, forgo that profit because I get to see someone else's life who I care, like deeply care about their life getting better anyways. Like it just so happens we were friends for over 10 years, but it's just a cool thing to see each other grow. Right. And you step up and you level up together and it's not always at the same time, right? There's little things he's better that Corey's better than me at, and, and vice versa, but it's really cool to go through life with a partner like this as your friend. And, and it seems like you and Christian are also becoming really tight friends and friendly friends. And um, there's just something in, incredible about it. I don't know, like I said, how to quite articulate how cool it is, but um, it helps you get through the, the tough times and helps you scale faster. And um, it's just fun. Like it, it's, it's as dumb as that sounds. It's just fun and exciting. And it makes you want to do more of it and get up every day and keep attacking because it's a game. That's kind of how I feel about it. I'm like, damn, like we know we're going to be successful. Just like you said, like, I just know like it's, it's me, unless I'm taking off the earth, then I'm done. But like, I'm going to keep, keep pounding the pavement and he's the same way. And it's just, 
it's you feel like you're going to a game and you just want to win. I don't know. That that's how I feel. I don't know how you Yeah, no, I, dude, I totally agree. I think uh I don't even know how to add on to that, but I think maybe I don't know, Cody, if you have some something to elaborate on there in terms of the relationship that you've built with Christian, but I I just think for us it's been the only thing that keeps us moving forward at the pace that we are is that to look across and be like, Oh, this guy, like, you know, for lack of a better word, like you're kind of in the trenches together, doing it together, which makes you like, <laughs> you see the fulfillment in the other person. And I know you already said that. So I, do you have anything to add on to that, Cody? Yeah. Just make sure that both people can do all the jobs because there's going to be a time where they can't do the job and you're going to have to pick up the slack. It's, it's not like it's 50, 50 granted Christian and I are 50, 50 on all of our ventures that we do together, but it's always a hundred, a hundred. You have to bring a hundred percent all the time. Yeah. I think uh, the important thing to note there is that we both recognize the changes that are going to happen in each of our lives and the schedule changes and that, you know, actually both of us have extremely busy winters. So it kind of works out rise, probably a little bit more busy, but we know that the, it's not a daily thing. It's more of a month, monthly or weekly thing where it's like, I have seen myself go on vacation and try to shut off. And he's like in the background grinding, I've seen it happen. And I've seen vice versa where it's like, he's got X amount of things to do in the next two weeks. And he, he was, I, you know, not disconnected, but just less involved. But as long as you have that mutual understanding that that is how the ebbs and flows are going to get you to your ultimate finish line, you have to have that. Or, I think people that end up going through that with someone that they really care about and it breaking apart is because you don't understand the ebbs and flows and you don't understand the changes and the, the, all of those things kind of have to be laid out, which we've done. And it sounds like you and Christian are on a good path with that. Yeah. Appreciate not that. to jump in here again, but like, I think it's all based around trust. I keep thinking about like, there's certain things, but like checking the, checking the bank records and like watching transactions go ebb and flow. Like obviously we do that, but after a certain period of time, I'm like, I just like, he's like, Oh yeah, I had to move this around. I'm like, all right, cool, man. Like, it's all, like, I trust you. Like I literally trust him. Like it's me doing it. And that's hard to say to someone, Oh, just jump in a deal with someone and, and trust them immediately. Right. Like you guys didn't know each other before this. So you're only like what, probably a couple of years of, of being friends and partners. Right. Like, so it does take time to build trust. We have a 10 year relationship with this. You guys have, I would say just, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like one to three year, but it is possible to see, look at how far you guys have scaled. And obviously you have a lot faster than us, a lot faster than us. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess my question here is what do you, how do you recommend people vet out partners and like, what qualities do you look for? Because it takes a lot to start trusting someone with like the future of your, of you guys, right. Not only your business, but like your livelihood, you're going to, you're trusting Christian to be your guy. Like, Hey, we're going to run this thing together. We're going to kick ass. Right. Like, how did you go through that and, and understand he was the right person um, aside from you both getting burned from this guy and you both knowing real estate? Yeah. So the, the trust just came out of doing what we said we were going to do. And we've been burned by other partners, even since that last guy, uh, people just lying. And the cool part about really building a machine and, you know, doing your own thing. If you end up partnering with other people, if you know your stuff works, you're not dependent on that other person. It's a great place to be. If someone lies to you and you know it's not truthful, you don't have to call them out on it. You just have to note it and then move on. Like we, We've been lied to by multiple folks and they're just blacklisted. Like we don't, we don't do business with them. We don't talk with them because if they're willing to lie to you, they'll lie for you and vice versa and you don't want that. Cool. Simply put. So, all right. I want to talk about the, uh, I guess your superpower here. And I think one of them is you've been able to fund all your deals with no bank loans, which is incredible. And it takes a lot of, the main thing it takes is like understanding, understanding deal structure, right. And what the other person, what the seller wants. So can you take us through this, this kind of journey you've had of like, how the hell are you every time are you securing these big deals? They're all multifamily. Like most are 10 plus units. How do you, how do you get no bank loans? And can you talk about maybe like a blueprint that you guys use as like a benchmark and then, you know, pull different levers to, to make the deal work for yourselves. I'm just so curious about this. People throw it around loosely and um, we're trying to get as intricate as possible because we have a lot of people asking about deal structure in our DMS. If you want to get complicated, we can do that. But, um, the main thing is 
take it down to deal debt and equity. You find something that you like. You got to figure out who owns it. That's great. Now you got to figure out the debt. Well, I don't use banks. I'm going through a refi right now. It's supposed to close tomorrow. And they're not returning my text, phone calls. I'm like, I'm almost tempted just to blow it up. Like I'm, I'm annoyed. It's, you know, I don't like banks because I'm sure they could be my a great asset, but it's possible to do without. And so I've just omitted that from my buying strategy. So now I've got deal. Next step is debt. That's going to have to come from something else. And it's a promissory note and a deed of trust with a seller finance note. And so that's going to be in a situation where the seller owns the asset outright. We're going to draft up what's called a promissory note, which is just a promise to pay. It's like a dollar bill that says a note on it. Promissory note is bigger than $100 typically, but it's just like that. And it outlines the terms of the payment. And then behind that, you've got typically a deed of trust. And the deed of trust, you know, in simple terms, says that they trust that you're going to pay them. But if you don't, they're going to have a lien on title. It's where they can foreclose, they sell it, get their money back. It's just a, a method of protection because a promissory note's only as good as the backing behind it. And so when I'm going to these sellers, I'm not approaching them as a buyer. The very first deal I did, because I didn't have this strategy, I didn't have anything. And it was listed on the market. So that was a slam dunk. But everything after that that was not on the market, I had to approach them as like, hey, You've done something I've never done. Curious how you did it. I learned their story. And I believe you get to the table, meaning you get in the room with the right people based on your relatable points, your, your history. You get them to work with you based on your goals or your, your future. And they buy into who you are, what you're doing, and they'll actually help you out if you resonate on significance, why you're doing what you're doing. And so I've, you know, that's evolved. It hasn't been just like this perfect map for me in the beginning, but I've used that relatable points starting at ground zero or on my second deal. I've got one 12 plex. I had a 12 plex. Looked you up. You had a couple other things. How did you build this? And uh, just built the whole relationship based idea off of learning through people's stories. And then all the complicated pieces were just the best pieces I took from the story, how they structured it. And so I've learned about seller financing, where you can do 100% seller financing, you buy an asset, zero money down, where let's say you already own something with equity. They, they finance 80% against the thing you're buying, 20% against something else you own, almost like a HELOC. And there's all these creative ways, then there's contract for deed. I learned that last year. And um, there's some people online today that are huge on the whole sub two thing. Yep. The sub two strategy is awesome. Like, well, cool, but it's not an acquisition strategy. It's a clause. And it's a clause on a real estate contract. It's, it's literally just a paragraph. So I learned about contract for deed and subject to from people that have been playing the game for 50, 60 years. Like, oh, yeah, that's a great clause to have on a real estate contract. And so they taught me the intricacies of that. And Essentially, that allows you to sell or finance or wrap an existing note into your acquisition and you can actually buy stuff, so your money out of pocket and then keep making payments to the seller. So there's a whole bunch of different strategies. You could do lease options with a seller financed option where you do like a 10-year lease with an option to buy it when their amortization is fully paid off. And then you can buy zero money down in the future, but you get the management and the price locked in today. There's a ton of different strategies, but my go-to has typically been seller first. So seller first lean position for 85 to 90%. to where I have to put 10, 15% down. And then I put a second lien behind that. And essentially, for those who aren't familiar with first lien, second lien, you can look up lien theory states, title theory states. We won't jump into that today. But um, if you sell it, in a lien theory state, which is where I'm at, the first lien is going to get paid off first. And if there's a mortgage recorded after that, think of it like on your house as a HELOC. If there's any money left after paying off the first mortgage, then you pay off the second. And then if you get really adventurous, third, fourth, I've heard people talk about fifth, but that's ridiculous. Cody, the fact that you're 22 is my, blowing my mind right here. 
Uh, you're, you're very well educated on the subject and I'm not, not nothing against being young at all. It's just amazing. I've, we've talked to people that are 55, 60 and they just, they're not as educated on the topic and they're investors for that many years. So it's incredible. Can you talk to, let's pivot this back to your, your portfolio a little bit, right? Cause you're at 105 units. We only talked about the first 12. Can you just talk through and you can give us the snapshot here. And yeah. if you want to talk to like, we'll kind of breeze through it, but how did you scale up from the 12 to the 105 and how long did it take you? And maybe you can talk about some of the briefly, like the creative um, financing that you did on each deal and that helped you leverage to the next one. Yeah, let's do a quick breakdown. So the very first deal was on the market, million one twenty five. I borrowed 125 in second lien position, put 10% down, kept a little bit of money in reserves. That was October of 2019. Fast forward to June 30 of 2020, I bought my second 12 flex. That was the guy that I ended up calling. I learned his story. We could talk a lot about it. His story is so cool. But um, I ended up buying that 12 flex, seller finance. That was a fixer upper. My first place was turnkey. Second place was a dump. And so I bought that for 680000 I've since then put over a quarter million dollars into renovations. Um, I actually borrowed that in second lien position later. Um, but 2020, I bought that place, 680, 560 seller financed. That was 6% interest on a 30-year AM 10-year balloon. And I borrowed $125,000, very similar numbers. And I was a little more comfortable doing it that time. Easier to make that pitch uh, in second lien position. Third deal was a sixplex. Bought for three hundred eighty thousand from the same guy. That was actually the first property he ever bought. He bought it for ninety grand way back when, nine thousand dollars down, seller finance. And he lived in one of the units with his wife, and it had cockroaches way back then, and it was a mess. Well, I bought it for three eighty. He had offers for mid fours. He sold it to me on a contract because he liked me, and I actually spent time learning about his story. Never met him prior to buying the twelve. So that was 30 units, and that was in March. Uh, I think it was March 17th of 2021, about a year ago, year and a half. And then later that year, I want to say October, November, I bought a 38 plex with my business partner at the time, Christian. And that was our first deal we ever did together. You went from two duplexes to buying a 38 with me, and I had 30 units. And so he's like, oh, you can manage 38. And I was like, heck yeah, I can. And that was on the market for 13 years. They financed a million seven, um, actually brought in equity partners. That was the first time I ever brought in equity partners and then bought them out six months later. Uh, got the cash flow. And the reason we did equity over debt is debt costs you money today, equity costs you money later. Because if there's no dividends to pay out, there's no cash flow you have to pay out. But if I just borrowed it as hard money, well, I'd have to keep making those payments. And that was stressful because it was already negative cash flowing 15 grand a month. Not good. Um, after that, everything exploded, meaning we just kept buying stuff. We bought three con uh, contiguous duplexes, seller financed. That was a contract for deed. Very first time I ever heard a contract for deed. And the reason we did that, I didn't actually sign any of the closing docs. We just signed a doc that said Christian could sign for everything. It was supposed to be promissory note, deed of trust. And he signed contract for deed because he didn't know better. And that's how we learned about it. We were put in the flame and ended up really liking it. And so we bought two more. This may not be in the right order, but we bought uh, two triplexes on contract for deed. Those were on the market. We brought an equity partner on that. Um, just a close friend. We bought seven plex in Tequila. That was also in 2021 in December. Bought a 10 plex and another six plex and another duplex. There, there's a few more small deals in there, yeah. but that got to 105. So the fun question here is, do you guys self-manage all 105 units or do you hire out? And then if you manage yourself, how the hell are you doing it? What yeah. kind of systems do you have? We started a property management company. And part of the whole loss I had with my old business partner was he ran the PM company and it stole a bunch of money. I'm still trying to get my security deposits back. Maybe one day. But, uh, <laughs> a lot of rent gone. And uh, yeah, so we started on PM company just on the fire. And we have two employees right now who are amazing individuals. And we're going to help them buy their own real estate. We're trying to get our first ever to buy and do a deal with us. We're buying a seller finance resort. So we're going to give her some ownership in that. 
for her help starting up the PM company. Love it. And um, so we got, yeah, a couple people. We use that folio for online rent collection and all accounting. We've got QuickBooks and we've got a bookkeeper. So we've had systems in place today. A lot of people want to focus on the management on the front end. That's not the right place to start because you have nothing to manage until you build something worth managing. And so we focused on that last when we had a management problem, which we did. In the beginning, we just had the real estate problem of not owning anything. Got it. But I just have one more question before we get to the last couple segments of our show. Sure. You mentioned that you know, you've only been doing this for a couple of years. I'm curious about your take on the real estate market, the, the stat, the, and I think before we started recording, you said you're kind of in a, not as accelerated buying as you've been in the past couple of years. What is your take on what you think is going to happen with the real estate market? Let's say then, you know, one to three or three to five years, just based on, you know, news is noise to me, but I'm, I'm curious what, how you see it. The reason that I'm slowing down is not because of the market. I will buy every great deal that fits what I'm looking to do. If it builds the story, I will do it. A lot of people are worried about the prices and all that. I don't care because if I can figure out how I buy, how do I never lose it? The price is irrelevant because I can pay off the majority of my debt. And you know, it's, it's getting up there. I'll be at, after this resort deal, I'll have um, like $12 million in debt. Right. And we could probably get it all paid off before I'm 30. So I'm not really worried about the whole price thing. The reason we're slowing down is so we can build more systems and hire more people and scale property management. But most people don't have that. Like they're not doing the PM thing, which is probably for the best. We're doing it because we wanted market control and it was easier to raise rents. If it was us, then it was someone else managing. But for someone who isn't doing that, uh, I would keep buying. I don't think that we're going to have ridiculous price drops on the type of asset that I'm buying. Now, if you're buying a bunch of houses, yeah, maybe you should worry about that because that's a lot of emotional buyers. But rents are going up pretty quick. And real estate tends to lag behind everything else because of leases, termed leases and I see rents just continuing to renew at higher prices and there's going to be an affordability issue even more so than there is. So there's going to have to be something with wages, but we're already seeing wages go up a lot. So I see prices continuing to go up on multifamily, which is why I'm buying multifamily. Cool. Um, On that last question about multifamily, a lot of people kind of, there's a, there's a slight difference or a little bit, a couple of different nuances between um, like a small, like duplex and like a 12 to 30 plex. Right. So yeah. can you explain the term cap rate that gets thrown around a ton? And how does that like impact the deals when you're analyzing them? Cause people, people are always throwing them around and I think it'd be easier to like elementarily walk someone through this. Cap rates got glorified by the bigger pockets crew. <laughs> Everybody loves them. Cap rates, your cash on cash return if you wrote a check for the asset. Meaning if you pay cash for a house, you buy it for hundred grand. At the end of the year, you had six grand of net cash flow that went in your pocket. You bought on a 6% cap rate. The reason it's a thing, well, there's a couple of reasons, but number one is so you can judge assets apples to apples. And if I'm buying a storage unit for a million bucks at the end of the year, I get 60 grand in my pocket or I buy a house for a hundred thousand, get 6,000. Or 5,000, you know, I can look at what's the actual return. And the less stable an investment is, the higher the return you're going to want. The more stable it is, the lower return you can accept. And that is generally as far as people take the cap rate thing. The reason it matters is because you have to be able to borrow debt cheaper than your cap rate. Otherwise, you don't make money. And if you borrow at 6% interest, and it's a 6% cap rate, you're basically paying cash for that deal. It's just not your cash. So you're going to be paying interest on someone else's cash to buy that deal. So you're going to earn, if you buy a million dollar deal, if you leverage it 100% at, uh, you know, you did zero money down at 6% interest, you do the math on that on a 30 gram, your payment's actually 72 grand a year. If you amortize it out on a 30, 
Uh, but you know, NOI is going to be 60. So you'd actually lose a thousand bucks a month to own that asset. And if you have to rewatch that and slow it down, do it. But if you're just looking at it as uh, an investment, you have to actually borrow significantly cheaper than your cap rate. So if you're buying a six cap, you're going to want to borrow at like four and a half percent before it starts getting good. Got it. Cool. Well, um, thanks for the snapshot on your business and you're obviously killing it. So congratulations to all the things you and Christian are doing. Can you take us through what your future goals with your business are? I mean, you're for a 22 year old cat, 105 units, 25 grand a month, like a lot, some people would be good. And you know, it seems like you have a lot more to go based on what I'm hearing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Just give us a little snapshot of where you hope to see this thing through to. Yeah. So the big goal that we want to buy the resort, that is like, that's the only thing. If that's all we did this year, that'd be great. And then we want to pay it off. Now there's a lot of benefit with leverage, but we want to pay the whole portfolio off when this is done. We just get it knocked out, be debt free. Then we'll go get new non-recourse debt, but we'll be worth, you know, multiple eight figures at that point instead of seven figures. And then we can go get bigger non-recourse loans, go get bigger deals. We'll have a bigger cash reserve. And if we need to liquidate something, it's just a quick, you know, we get cash out. Uh, we won't have debt. And so we get the resort. Then we want to pay everything off. The first property will be the resort. Then we'll pay off 38. We'll pay off all the little stuff. And from there, we'll continue to leverage to go hit some of the bigger goals. We called our shot on YouTube saying we're going to get to $10 billion of uh, equity by the time I'm 40 got 17 and a half years to get there. It's a lot. Granted, it's 5 billion and 5 billion. It's not like 10 billion each, but it's a lot of money. And the reason is back to my earlier points, someone else will get there. We'll, just, we'll manage it better. And so we're going to see if we can do that, but we want to pay off everything we've built so far so that we have a multiple eight figure holdings in cash. And we'll probably cross it with a line of credit you know, just have a huge line. So if we ever needed to get liquid at a moment's notice, you know, if there's a lawsuit or something, then because that happens in the business, then we could lever up relatively quickly or we could use it to go buy something else, but we're not there yet. So uh, we want to buy the resort. That's the only thing we want to do right now. When that's done, hammer debt. I love that, man. It's a, that's a pretty cool blueprint. Your sounds like you're really focused and uh, I don't have any doubt that you'll get there. So it's, 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 um, it's pretty awesome. So we made it to the core four, we can go, you know, rapid fire on some of these questions. Uh, we're going to get to know you a little more personally. Okay. So I like having it be a little bit of a surprise here, but the first question is easy. What is your favorite book? I don't know if you're a reader or not. What's your favorite book? If you're not a reader that you would recommend to people that are starting out or, you know, maybe in the first couple stages of their own journey. I have a book. I'm not a huge reader because I prefer to learn stories through people rather than the written word. However, Deals on Wheels by Lonnie Scruggs is a good book. Cool. Very cool. Second question is, this is going to be very a little bit for you guys because you're in a different stage, but for you personally, if we gave you a, a check today, 50,000 bucks tax-free, just here you go. How would you use it? Would you invest it, spend it? How would you divvy up your pie of 50K? Yeah. Um, 50k i'd probably just throw it at the resort cool easy enough. you haven't paid yourself anything dude so all right you know i was just maybe we got a sweet car maybe we get some invest in yourself but i like it you just want to pay off that resort that's the cool. goal I'll, I'll get the money later when that's all paid off the cash flow is going to be seven figures a year so i mean let's get there that'll be cool fun. love it love it cool so um Third question, what has been your biggest mistake in your investing journey, in your short investing journey? Amazing investing journey, but how, how have you learned from it? I thought that I was growing too quickly. That was a mistake. So I, I didn't buy excellent deals that I could have bought zero money down seller financed. I thought I was growing too quick. And I turned down a couple of deals that would have made the whole journey a lot easier. It would have gotten me to hundred grand a year and passive income a lot quicker. And I probably out of that would have actually started paying myself and built the business a little different, but. So you're saying you actually did have like a little bit of a fear moment where you're like, 
I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't, for whatever reason, you shouldn't have been growing as fast as you were even, but you're proved that to be wrong. It sounds like. Yeah. Eventually I got over it and I was like, okay, that was stupid. But, and those deals went away. The person ended up keeping them and I understand why, but I mean, excellent opportunities that I just said no to, because I thought I was growing too quick, but that's not true. I didn't have all the systems in place, you know, figuring out all the taxes and all that. My um, CPA says he's going to make me cry one of these days, but <laughs> yeah, he probably yeah. owes you a knuckle sandwich or two, dude. <laughs> well, or three, but that's okay because that's the right type of problem to have. And I appreciate him you know, a ton. Like there's just, we're building that relationship to where he's here to help. And I understand that. And so he's like, you're not going to like me. I'm like, give it a day. We'll be back to normal. But um, in the beginning, I thought I was going too quick and that was just false thinking. I was misguided. Cool. Well, last question, the core four is what do you want your legacy to be? So what gets you out of bed every morning to do what you do and kind of like, what's your why? Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in a split household and I stopped actually playing a soccer career after 11 years because we couldn't afford it. It was more expensive than family wanted to afford at the time. And, and so it's not like I was playing some huge you know, premier team or anything. It was just some, it was like a smaller select team and couldn't afford it. And it's not because of that, but uh, I want to re- retire my mom. So she doesn't have to worry about money. My dad's doing well. Um, and so I want to be able to put her in a position where she doesn't have to worry about it. And then I want to be a resource, talk about $10 billion, be a resource to those who grew up in split households that were way worse off than I was because granted, I mean, I, I grew up in two different households and couldn't do everything, but there's a lot of people that were way worse off. And so if I can be a resource for them, if I've got $5 billion real estate paid off, I can just sell or finance a 10 plex, 12 plex, a house, a fourplex. Like I can be a resource for the people that need it. And that's why I'm continuing to push. Very admirable. I love that. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you say that because I, um, you know, I'd actually just recently made a goal of mine to retire my, dad as well. Not because he needs me to just because I want to make sure I put icing on, on top down the line. So I think it's pretty cool that you want to do that. Um, and also be a resource to other people who, who grow up in split houses. I think that's a uh, pretty admirable. Um, yeah. So it sounds like we made it to the last drop. And in the last drop, we want to know, <laughs> we say this, like, you know, what advice would you give your younger self? But I guess we have to go back to like your, 14 year old self at this point or 15 or 16, whatever it is, like maybe when you first, you know, hit, got the, uh, the, the fire lit for you, uh, what advice would you, would you tell your younger self if you could Cody? Hmm. Well, learn how to talk to people. I, I was the biggest introvert ever. It was really hard. And I learned how to communicate at Starbucks. And my thought process was, if I butcher this saying hi, then uh, I'll never see them again. So yeah. I, I learned how to talk to people over, you know, Starbucks coffee it wasn't even that great at coffee, but I just realized ah, I'm never going to see them again. So I can butcher the conversation. I'll just try and go be personable. And I would tell my younger self to go learn that younger than 19 years old. Cause I didn't learn how to connect with others until like, two and a half years ago. Wow. I think that's, first of all, super bold to bring up and like brave, I guess brave is probably the better word. Like to, to say that there's a lot of people that probably are introverts that maybe here in the podcast or something like this. And they're like, wow, I, I never could do something like what these guys are doing because I don't have it in me to go talk, build relationships, get out there. Like whether it's just a fear, the lack of interest, or just like intrinsically, it's not in you, right? It's not, you're not built for it. Um, you can train yourself to do something like that. And that's, it's really cool that you went out and you're like, Hey, listen, this is going to be tough. 
but I'm just going to keep hammering it until I figure it out. And if it's over Starbucks, never see the guy again, whatever, who cares? But, um, it's very cool, man, because there's, I think it's just good to bring to light because there's a lot of things people go through behind closed doors that no one knows about, right? Like obviously you have your story of the split family. And then also just not feeling like you're an extrovert, that it's, it's going to be like a bigger hump for you to get into the space. Look at you into the space. Clearly, you know how to build relationships now. And that's how you leverage your whole portfolio with a goose egg down of your own money, which is absolutely uh, remarkable, man. So congratulations to you. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, man. So we, first of all, we really appreciate you coming on. It was awesome to know your story. I think you're a true inspiration. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read the book outliers, but, um, I like, they talk about superstars in their craft and at your age, you remind me of somebody who could, is that is an outlier, but that doesn't mean that other people listening can't take bits and pieces from what you're doing and start to build something of their own. And I think that's why people are really going to want to listen to this episode. So we really appreciate you coming on. It's been fantastic to get to know you. Um, if people want to learn more about you, your story, um, or maybe, you know, network at some capacity, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah. If they want to message me on Instagram, Cody D 2020, Cody D 2020, or they can reach out on YouTube. Just look up Cody Davis real estate or Cody and Christian multifamily strategy. And you can check it out there. Awesome. Well, Cody, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you on here. Glad to have you in our network now. And um, we look forward to staying in touch. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks for tuning in this week to the weekly juice podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and share with friends. The more ratings we get, the more ears we'll get on our show, and in turn, we'll be able to provide you with more high-quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod, where we post daily tips and tricks and document our own journey towards financial freedom. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice.